Hello, my name is Randy Ostra, President and CEO of Prometica. I'm pleased to welcome you to this eight-part series of healthcare reform discussions with nationally recognized health policy experts. These interviews will discuss Medicare policy, including healthcare pricing, long-term care, and the social determinants of health. This series is part of an ongoing two-year effort by more than a dozen hospital CEOs from around the U.S. to urge Congress to take up significant health care policy reform legislation, largely by calling for the creation of a National Commission on Health Care Reform. It is our intent that these policy reforms discussed during these interviews demonstrate our desire for substantive national reform. Moreover, that these interviews help to further inform congressional members and committee staff as they work to craft legislation to improve health care delivery and financing during the next Congress. Our motivation is straightforward. Well before the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, we were adamant that race, age, and or economic circumstances should not be defined as pre-existing conditions. Nor do we accept the premise that Americans should be resigned to live shorter lives in poorer health. We invite you to listen to or to read the transcripts of all eight interviews. If you'd like to provide comment, you can do so via the contact information noted at the conclusion of these interviews. Welcome to this series of eight interviews concerning federal health care policy reform. I'm the host, David Intracasso. With me to discuss traditional Medicare or Medicare fee-for-service is Dr. Amal Navathe, Assistant Professor of Health Policy and Medicine, Co-Director of the Healthcare Transformation Institute, and Associate Director of the Center for Health Incentives and Behavioral Economics, all at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. Dr. Navathe, welcome to the interview. Thank you, David, for having me. On background, the Medicare program is expected to grow from 62 to 80 million Americans by the end of this decade. Approximately $400 billion of the $650 billion in current Medicare costs are attributable to Medicare fee-for-service spending, the remainder to MA funding. Medicare spending in sum is projected to double to nearly $1.3 trillion by 2029. Among other current Medicare fee-for-service policy problems, the Part A trust fund is projected to be insolvent in three years. Part B policy intended under the 2015 macro legislation to move eligible fee-for-service clinicians into advanced alternative payment models or financial at-risk models remains unproven, largely due to the fact that less than one in five eligible clinicians participate, and the Part D and Part B drug spending growth continues to exacerbate Medicare program spending, largely because HHS, unlike the VA, is prohibited from exercising its purchasing power. Among other policy problems, Medicare fee-for-service, unlike Medicare Advantage, has no annual out-of-pocket spending cap. Fee-for-service does not provide long-term care, hearing, oral, or vision care, or social service supports. The Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation payment demonstrations have proven to be at best marginally successful, and post-acute suffers numerous quality and reimbursement problems, for example, Skilled nursing facilities continue to overprescribe antipsychotics, while 2018 marked the 19th consecutive year freestanding skilled nursing facility profit margins were in the double digits. With me again to discuss Medicare fee-for-service policy reform is Dr. Amol Navate. 
Please note Dr. Navathi's comments are his own. Uh, Dr. Navathi, let, let's start with uh, my asking uh, a, a general question. That is, uh, what uh, Medicare-related policy conclusions do you draw from the pandemic's effects on the Medicare uh, beneficiary population? Well, the the pandemic, the public health emergency here with coronavirus and COVID has obviously had devastating impacts on elderly Americans in particular. The data is pretty clear that age is a major risk factor and the, and older Americans have disproportionately bore the burden uh, alongside the inequities that we see along racial and socioeconomic lines as well. And, and so I think there's a few things that we see here. I think one, you know, just from a, a, a basic humanity perspective, of course, we have a large population of vulnerable folks uh, who, uh, who unfortunately have died and, and others who are at risk. Uh, particularly, we've heard a lot about those who live in the nursing homes. So the Medicare program, I think one has obviously to support vaccination efforts, public health efforts as strongly as possible, as well as trying to get more support, guidance, you know, PPE, sort of the full nine yards, if you will, uh, in particular to nursing homes and assisted living facilities and other institutions that are caring for particularly vulnerable Medicare beneficiaries. The other point I'll note is that the other impact it's had on the Medicare program is, of course, financial, given the amount of costs associated with the type of care and the PPE that's been required along the way and that will be continue to be required over the next year at least. And we've seen, for example, Medicare Trust Fund or the Hospital Insurance Fund, the estimates of its insolvency have accelerated. Now, I think the Congressional Budget Office is estimating as soon as 2024. Correct. So, so first, you know, we obviously have a lot of people who've been harmed by this and the Medicare program's first duty is to try to, to help them as best as possible, get the care that they need and to set up the appropriate public health measures and the like. And the second is we need to now address the financial implications of the COVID public health emergency on the program at large. Okay, thank you for that. And we'll get back to the um, solvency uh, questionnaire issue. But before we go into specific program policies, uh, let me ask you, what's your take on expanding the Medicare program or a Medicare buy-in policy? As you're very well aware, this has been discussed for several decades, actually, um, and there was, not surprisingly, in this past Congress, a bill introduced to allow seniors, uh, and it varies beginning at 50 or older, to buy into uh, the Medicare program. What's, what's, your, what's your policy perspective on a buy-in? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Uh, you know, my, my policy perspective here is that the Medicare program, on one hand, for, for current Medicare beneficiaries, uh, obviously, has been very successful uh, in general. And within it, you know, we've had a successful Medicare Advantage program that has also engaged the private insurance industry and the private sector within the Medicare program as well. So, so I, I think from that perspective, uh, starting from that as a foundation, looking forward and saying, okay, is there a way to expand the Medicare program to allow more people to buy in, if you will, uh, makes a lot of sense. That being said, unfortunately, with all things healthcare, the devil is in the details. And if you look at 
the concept of a public option or the concept of being able to buy into Medicare, one, we know that Medicare beneficiaries uh, from an age perspective and an end of life perspective, particularly for those who eventually will pass on, uh, bear a, you know, or cost, if you will, uh, expend a lot of dollars. And, and so if, if we think about this, at least in some sense as a traditional insurance concept of spreading risk, having younger individuals buy into Medicare is likely at least to start out to be rather expensive compared to an actually fair insurance product, if you will, that they could buy on the commercial market. And, and so to make that pragmatically feasible would mean that we would have to mobilize very substantial subsidies. And, uh, and so I think that's where the devil in the details becomes particularly important. You know, is that, is, is this the mechanism that we really want to pursue as a society, you know, from a legislative perspective, from an executive perspective to try to expand insurance or are there other ways to do it kind of like the way the Affordable Care Act had tried to do it? So I think, I think in principle, put it this way, I guess I would say my, my policy opinion is in principle, it sounds like a good idea, but to make it feasible and actually to make it affordable such that you get considerable uptake as a way to solve some of the underinsurance or uninsurance problem in this country, I think actually it's not as trivial or as simple as it might seem otherwise. Right. Thank you. I'll just note there was an urban study just out this month, uh, effects of a Medicare buy-in for older adults. And you're right. It's a very complicated uh, uh, question as it relates to, as you note, uh, how you uh, flesh out the details. Let's get into then uh, more specifically uh, the Medicare fee-for-service program. Uh, as I noted in my intro, uh, uh, Medicare's goal uh, is to move physicians or, as they're termed, eligible clinicians into what are termed advanced payment models. The flagship advanced payment model, you're well aware, is the uh, Medicare Shared Savings Program, or ACOs, with uh, currently over 11 million uh, finan- uh, F- uh, fee-for-service or other beneficiaries assigned. On balance, it's fair to say the program has not succeeded uh, to the extent hoped. And I'll quote research recently published by Harvard's J. Michael McWilliams, uh, in which he concluded the program is, quote-unquote, not headed in the right direction, in part because he argued estimated savings to date are overstated, quote-unquote, largely because the program lacks, and he lists a long list of concerns, including rigorous evaluation uh, and problems with, as he details, financial benchmarking, benchmark rebasing, financial incentives, risk exposure, risk adjustment, etc. So since this uh, is the, again, flagship Medicare fee-for-service reform program, I wanted to start with this particular aspect by asking you, what's your understanding of the ACO program's performance to date, and what would you recommend, say, two or three primary uh, policy reforms you think would help improve the program? Sure. So I I follow... Uh, Mike McWilliams has worked quite carefully, and he's obviously been one of the, the key leaders in, in helping us understand what the ACO program, you know, MSSP and others have, have done in terms of effects. So I would say you're going to find that I largely agree with him, but I, I might differ in a couple of places. You know, my general sense is that 
overall, the ACO program has certainly not been a smashing success. Uh, you know, we would have loved for it to have truly had a very substantial amount of savings and quality improvements. I think what we have seen, however, still is that there's actually been quite a bit of practice pattern changes underneath the program in a way that we may not necessarily think is driven by the financial incentives, which are rather weak or you know rather not strong, if you will. And and so I actually think I walk away from that saying that's that's very good news from two respects. Number one, it means that the healthcare provider sector, hospitals, physician practices, clinicians, etc., they're signing up to change in a, in a, at a time and, and in a form where the financial incentives aren't overwhelmingly driving them to change. Uh, and it also likely means that there's enough change that is being catalyzed as part of the secular trend, if you will, you know, just the general the general direction of the Medicare program that means it's worth it for them to start to invest and prepare in these types of practice changes. I take that to be very good news. I don't I don't think that's all attributable to the MSSP, but I do think some of the early moves that the that Medicare made in the previous decade. Uh, by signaling that we're going to move towards value, we're going to move towards alternative payment models. We're going to even move fee for service to incentivize participation in alternative payment models. It started to create a cultural shift in the practice patterns and in the expectations of providers. MSSP was a big part of that, as you noted. As you noted, it's one of the flagship initiatives. And so, I think from that perspective, we should be optimistic about the impact that MSSP has had and the direction we're going. Now, the specific financial structure of the program and the way that it's evolved, I think, you know, does have considerable challenges and perhaps corrections that are needed. You know, practices, hospitals, it takes time to actually improve quality and change the way that, you know, redesign care, if you will, or transform practices, pick your favorite buzzword. And and so the way that the model has been con- currently constructed around what some of us will call, you know, race to the bottom types of designs, I think that is not conducive to a lot of in- investment in infrastructure. And and so I think a more stable, longer term type of a cycle to the financial incentives that is benchmarked to more of what the general health sector is doing it within Medicare is likely to generate more participation and hopefully more results. So I think that's one key thing is, is let's change the structure to be a longer term model here and less about squeezing existing systems and then rebasing in a way that takes away the incentive to really participate at all. The other struggle that uh, others have written and I've written about as well is the voluntary participation piece in in confluence with these other challenges creates a big problem because it does create opportunities for preferential selection or preferential participation. And while I think on one hand, we've seen more of a direction towards geographic models, including, for example, the direct contracting geo model that was just announced within mm-hmm. the last few weeks, I think Sure, a lot of us think geographic-based models make a lot of sense, right? But then you can actually create structures where 
the most efficient providers are not the ones who are penalized because they can't generate savings against their historical benchmarks. And you don't get the situation where you're only incentivizing participation from, quote, the most wasteful providers, but then you rebase them and so then they're out, right? They're going to quit after they make their savings for a couple of years. The challenge is when you have non-mandated participation, you have voluntary participation, then, then practices and hospitals are going to join when it's favorable and not when it's not favorable. And that's going to deconstruct this whole regional system. The big challenge is we've seen bundle payment models as an alternative, alternative payment model to ACOs. We've seen a successful implementation of a mandated design with a comprehensive care for joint replacement program. I think it may be more challenging to mandate ACO participation. And so I think that actually brings a very challenging point that I actually haven't seen a lot of folks write yet about is how do we solve this problem? I think you know folks are generally quick to point out that there's weak incentives. They're generally quick to point out that we have this race to the bottom, uh, that we, you know, we we need stronger incentives, but do we really need downside incentives? That's another thing that I've seen written. Uh, I think we've heard about preferential selection and gaming. We've heard about the benefit of regional pricing, for example, regional market structures. But then what do we do about this voluntary mandatory problem? I think it's a real challenge. And uh, you know, one of the, the policy-like solutions I would, or policy directions at least, I would like to see is, is to see the fee-for-service, Medicare fee-for-service alternative payment model market look at the other side of the Medicare program and Medicare Advantage and see how Medicare Advantage is addressing this. Because Medicare Advantage does have voluntary participation intrinsically by deciding to bid and, um, and has you know, generated positive results, although I will be uh, I, I think I will note, important to note that the Medicare Advantage program has not yet generated savings for the Medicare program overall. But I think moving to a model where you have, you're able to effectively take the entire fee-for-service population and divide it up um, amongst a set of voluntary groups, whether they're actually providers or they may be convener-like organizations that are used um, heavily in, in the context of bundle payments, or a lot, many organizations now kind of function as enablers in the context of Medicare shared savings programs, or whether they can actually also help to bear some of the risk. I think we need some sort of mechanism there. Otherwise, we're, we're headed toward a, a policy crisis where we can't really institute a model that is rational without moving to a market or regional-based approach, but then we can't move to a regional or market-based approach because we're stuck in a voluntary model. And I think that's a very important policy consideration, one I think that we need to start to take head on, which largely, especially in the last several years, I think we've seen the shift of, toward the voluntary side, sorry, to the regional side, maintain the voluntary side, but kind of turned a blind eye, if you will, towards the, the crisis that we're headed towards when we do that. Okay, thank you. You, you foreshadowed my next question by using the phrase race to the bottom noting weak incentives and the mandatory versus voluntary problem. And uh, that is uh, your recent uh, work um, titled uh, Medicare Payment Reforms Next Decade, a Strategic Plan for the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, or CMMI. But before I, I ask you about that recent uh, piece you co-authored with some colleagues at Penn, 
Uh, let me let me offer the question. Would you like to comment uh, about the, the problem, intrinsic problem with fee for service or pay for volume, or would you like to cover that or address that issue relative to unpacking what you recommend in this recent essay? Because in the essay, um, you argue for, amongst other things, fewer demonstration models. Uh, here's the fee for service uh, 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 comment. That is, you argue for population-based payments. Uh, you also note a path to mandatory participation. I'm interested in that. Uh, you mentioned developing synergies, and you emphasize healthcare uh, equity, or trying to work towards improving uh, healthcare equity. So, uh, feel free to make comment again, uh, specifically on the problem, inherent problem with the so-called fee-for-service chassis upon which, of course, the ACO model is built. Or if you'd like to start by unpacking. Again, your recent essay entitled Medicare Payment Reforms Next Decade. So take your choice. So why don't we start with the fee-for-service? Because I think it's a building block on which to sure. then step into to other other topics, including that essay. So the way that Medicare has pursued fee-for-service reform, if you will, right, uh, through, the, through the Congress has been – as part of the SGR fix that started the Merit Incentive Payment System MIPS program right. in Medicare fee-for-service, which instituted you know, MACRA, MIPS, and the, the Quality Payment Program. Correct. And and I, I would say I have two main comments about that program. Uh, you know, one is it's been successful in one regard, and it's been not so successful in another regard. And this area I would say it's been at least somewhat successful is making – a participating in regular old traditional Medicare fee for service, a little bit more unpalatable for personally specialists, but also for primary care physicians and the like. And what that has done is created more of an interest in participating in, in advanced APMs, alternative payment models, as a way to get your bonus, if you will, 5% bonus mm-hmm. on your Medicare fee for service rates rather than having to participate in what is rather administratively onerous and somewhat, you know, not very well designed incentive program from the perspective of behavioral economics and kind of traditional economics. And, uh, and so I think making fee for service a little bit less palatable, I think it's a success because at the end of the day, if we're really going to have alternative payment models and value-based payments as a mechanism for financial sustainability you know, a la the trust fund solvency problem and such, then we're going to have to drive a lot more spending into these programs, you know, much, much greater than we currently have even as part of MSSP. Mm-hmm. And, and as long as the alternative to alternative payment models is I'm in a fee for service system where I can still kind of, you know, um, thrive and under the current practice patterns and current systems without mm-hmm. investing in change and, you know, sort of have my cake and eat it too sort of thing, then we're not going to get that, that uptick in participation. We're not going to be able to solve Medicare financial solvency issues and traject sustainability trajectory issues uh, with our alternative payment models. So that's the silver lining. I think that might, that may exist, or that's a small win that exists under how MIPS has worked. Now, that wasn't the intention of MIPS straight up to just to make fee for service less palatable, I think. Right. Um, and so, but I do think that's one general theme that we do need to think about. Now, 
in, in making fee-for-service unpalatable, the other thing that I will, I will note is, and this kind of links into the essay you were noting, the goal should not be, I'm not at all trying to advocate, although I'm being a little glib about it, uh, that we make fee-for-service literally so unpalatable that people quit for taking Medicare fee-for-service patients, because that would also be an unfettered catastrophe. But what we do want to do is we do want to change fee-for-service to be aligned with the value in two ways. One, a transitional path where people see, people being clinicians and healthcare organizations, that even fee-for-service is either going away or changing fundamentally in a way that it's more advantageous to participate in advanced APMs, or that the way that we're altering fee-for-service, a la the fee schedule, for example, the professional fee schedule, is changing in a way that actually reinforces the types of practice patterns that we're trying to generate as part of alternative payment models in the first place. Mm-hmm. So can we turn fee-for-service, Medicare in quotes, as a glide path to APMs anyways? That's really what MIPS should be doing. And I think in philosophically, that may have been part of the intent. But I think pragmatically, the way that has been implemented, unfortunately, falls short of that. Right. And as a member of MedPAC, the commission has recommended that the MIPS program, of course, be reinvented. MedPAC have said similar things about uh, the MA quality uh, bonus program as well. Um, let's Let's go to specifically... Again, uh, this essay published in Health Affairs last week, Medicare Payment Reform's Next Decade, a Strategic Plan for CMMI. Again, if you could um, tell us where you, where, where you and your colleagues want to go generally, I did clearly get the sense, of course, and this has been argued frequently, that we have way too many, as Don Burke would have phrased, canoes in the water, uh, far too many uh, demonstration models, uh, but I found it particularly interesting that you make note of, and we're hearing increasing discussion about this, particularly with what the pandemic has done relative to utilization, and that is uh, moving towards, again, to redress the problems with fever service, that is population-based payments. And then you do emphasize on trying to work uh, regionally. So could you describe again uh, how CMMI would do this? Yeah, so I, I think you know one one piece that that is fundamentally important, and there's been some MedPAC discussion. Although, of course, we wrote uh, I wrote that article not as a MedPAC commissioner, right? Not in my capacity as MedPAC commissioner. Um, but I think the the point is that there have been a lot of canoes placed in the water, but the canoes have not really been placed in a way of saying, "Hey, you know what? Downstream, as some of them sink and some of them th- float or thrive." You know, are we going to end up in a place where they kind of all fit together and can become a greater than the sum of their parts? That's that doesn't seem to be what the priority was. I think the priority 10 years ago was to try to shift towards innovation. And I think I think that the Medicare, generally speaking, you know, MSSP uh, was legislated as part of the Affordable Care Act. So not really a CMMI program in some sense. Um, but nonetheless, I think they were successful at starting a several programs. Now the question is, we have a lot of evidence. So can we consolidate those learnings and actually put forth a much more cohesive and coordinated strategy? Mm-hmm. Yes, we need to reduce the number of models. But what we don't want to do is reduce the mo- number of models without a great amount of thought and coordination such that we end up with a, end up with a big gap in a particular sector like post-acute care or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that's probably the simplest but the most important thing 
that we, we have said in that is, yes, we want to reduce, but we, we need to lay out a strategic plan and we need to con- convey and articulate that much like Sylvia Burwell did, you know, relatively early in the Obama days of, of pointing out, hey, we're moving, we're moving to alternative payment models. We're moving to value. And this is what these are what our targets are. And, you know, everybody can see these targets, including the provider sector. And so you know where we're headed. So similarly, if we could do the same thing, saying, here's what the healthcare market of the future looks like, even in the context of Medicare. And although prices are regulated, we are going to institute some sort of competition-based markets within the regional setting. And we're going to use value-based payments as the mechanism to drive that. Uh, I think those are the types of articulations that we really want to get out there because those that will drive greater participation that will drive greater change much in the way you know alongside the idea of trying to prioritize and simplify the second key point that i want to make sure doesn't get lost because it's uh, you know we call it the twin goal alongside value meaning that it's not second it's not number two it's it's you know number one right alongside value is the goal of trying to improve healthcare equity and uh, and that is fundamentally important. What we need to also, what we need to do kind of as we prioritize going forward is not have equity be an afterthought or a sense of, well, we need to monitor for an unintended effect on, on equity, which is tended to be the, the way that we've approached healthcare payment programs in the past, but rather, you know, elevate it to be a twin goal and say, how do we actually create mechanisms such that Value-based programs are a mechanism for equity, and equity is a pathway to value as part of value-based programs. And I think that's another really important piece that, that I would like to score here. Right. You do say early on in your essay that we can uh, risk or that, in fact, value-based payment forms are actually hindering access to care, worsening disparities for lower socioeconomic and minority populations. Let me let me push you on this uh, mandatory. Again, you say that uh, CMMI reform should include a path to mandatory participation. H- how does that play out? Is that, does that play out when uh, we have enough experience to, to prove uh, that these models can drive value, improve outcomes, achieve relative spending? Or when does mandatory kick in? Yeah, great, great question. So I think there's, uh, I think part of what we're trying to articulate there is it really depends on the type of care, the type of healthcare organization that you're targeting a model to. I don't think we want to say out of the box, every model should be tested in a mandatory fashion because fundamentally, I honestly don't believe that that's feasible in many cases. There are cases where it could be more feasible than others. So we also don't want to exclude the possibility. That's why we uh, you know, wrote it as a somewhat neb- uh, ambiguously or kind of flexibly worded path to mandatory. Mm-hmm. The point, however, is that regardless of how you start a program, whether it's voluntary or mandatory, obviously if it's mandatory, you're done. But if you're if you're voluntary, there has to be an articulated path to how you get to a mandatory program. Because if we live in the world of voluntary programs, as we talked about early earlier, right. the 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 mechanics of program implementation. Right. And, and I have seen this in my work, not only as part of MedPAC, but you know, my, my group works a lot with, with private health plans extensively across the country. In fact, also provider systems 
to set up new incentive programs, new payment models. And we see this over and over again. You know, if you, if you don't have a market-based type approach, it's very challenging to actually get participation from the, the groups that you really want participation from for as long as you want them to participate. And, uh, and so that's why the mandatory piece becomes important. Yes, we might need to use voluntary as a proof of concept. We might need to do randomized designs where we, you know, we pick some markets or stagger the offering of programs it, you know, uh, even though they may be voluntary, we stagger them in some in some structure or fashion so we can get real estimates of how impactful these programs are. But when we understand that something can work and 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 provider groups and hospitals and organizations have had some experience and we can get some understanding of what type of technical assistance other systems might need. At that point, we we do need a plan to look forward and say, hey, this is how this could actually function in a mandatory way, or, or really, I think in another way of saying it is, you know, could these be programmatic, permanent changes that Medicare could make, you know, take mandatory out of it? Could, could Medicare actually take the evidence from, the, from the, what we've learned and make changes such that it can increase value, put beneficiaries in a better situation and help the Medicare program overall? And, and I think sometimes we get tripped up in this context of scaling or mandatory thinking that again we're only living in the world of testing you know are we going to test mandatory programs sure mandatory is is a great way to test programs to get valid results to understand what the impact is but at some point if we're ever going to really capture value from the types of testing that cmmi and cms has done more broadly then we have to be able to shift towards permanent changes otherwise all we're doing is experimenting for experimentation's sake, which is not the point. This is not the point of value-based payment models. The point, the, the whole goal of CMI and all of the testing and the Affordable Care Act statutes around this for, for Medicare have been to actually design models that improve quality of care uh, and or save money for the program. Okay, thank you. With, with the time we have remaining, I do want to spend a few minutes, if I could, on post-acute in fee-for-service, uh, crudely phrased, this is considered the Wild West in Medicare uh, payments. Uh, we do know that, as, as you noted at the top, um, lessons learned from the pandemic relative to the effects on the long-term care uh, setting, particularly uh, among skilled nursing facilities. Uh, you're probably well aware that SNFs simultaneously suffer from let's just say, uh, quality performance that could be substantially improved while, uh, as MedPAC has shown, uh, 2018 represents something like the 20th year of freestanding uh, SNFs have seen double-digit margins. So with the time remaining, I'm, I'm curious to know your top-of-line policy reform recs uh, in post-acute, uh, maybe particularly moreover in SNFs, and let's just note that, of course, we we're well aware that um, the Congress and CMS is working towards developing a uniform post-acute uh, prospective payment system. Right. So I, I think, you know, you, you noted several important factors and, and points here, right? So the, the post-acute care sector has been particularly hard hit by COVID, certainly nursing homes in particular, um, and beneficiaries in those facilities also have been have been disproportionately harmed. So, uh, you know, I think 
at this very current juncture is probably not the right time to be deploying major changes to how we finance care mm-hmm. to try to to uh, spawn either more efficiencies or other types of changes uh, in that sector. That being said, if if we look at what we knew from before the public health emergency and therefore what is likely to be the situation afterwards, you know, for one thing, MedPAC, the commission has recommended uh, either zero or negative payment updates for much of the payment of the post-acute sector for uh, certainly as long as I've been on the commission, but but years and going back year, multiple years now before that. And and so I think relative to how the Medicare program reimburses and pays across the different provider sectors within the provider sector, I think there is not, a not there is not parity, and in fact, the post acute care sector has continued to enjoy, you know, pandemic aside, uh, relatively generous rates. And we know that there's a tremendous amount of variation in the practice patterns that is likely unwarranted from a clinical perspective. So, uh, so I think from a Medicare perspective, there there's a tremendous opportunity, and there's there should be a lot of focus on trying to make that sector more efficient, uh, such that the Medicare programs, the taxpayer are getting greater value. The unified post-acute care system is something that MedPAC has been working on, has certainly argued for. Uh, that, you know, I will say as, a, as an individual, again, not on behalf of MedPAC, as an individual, uh, it's a still a daunting task, given that there's a lot of unobserved heterogeneity, you know, that we don't see in Medicare claims around individual patients and their needs. And so we have a ways to go there. I think, however, in the shorter term, what we have seen is that even, you know, the programs, let's tie it back to Medicare shared savings programs or bundle payment programs, they've actually generated pretty substantial gains. Uh, And most Mm -hmm. of those gains, or many of those gains, I should say, um, have come from reductions in post-acute care that seem to be largely preference-based or discretionary or perhaps even, you know, outright unwarranted. And uh, and so I think to the extent that we can turn our attention to it really in a multi-pronged way, right? One, uh, can we make, can we create and, and institute greater parity in the generosity of payments between post-acute care and other, other areas of the provider sector, number one, that's just sort of rates on fee-for-service. Uh, number two, can we actually pursue uh, greater rationalization of post-acute care uh, in the context of existing alternative payment model structures, bundle payments, Medicare share savings, direct contracting, uh, et cetera. And uh, number three, is there an opportunity over time, is that, uh, particularly as the data infrastructure improves, to then get to a system that is truly rationalized post-acute care across the entire sector, including home health, you know, from the continuum from within the home all the way through more intensive rehab in the inpatient setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we can get there, certainly I think that's the direction of the future, but I don't think that's impendingly upon us. And so I think we should uh, have the Medicare program and and Congress take on all three of these and, and the Medicare program, the innovation center, sort of participate in taking on all three of these. Okay, thank you. We're at our time. So I appreciate your comments on very complicated uh, program in some and I'm glad we got to touch about on as many of these as we have. So, Amal, thank you very much for your time, and I appreciate it. Sure. Thank you so much for having me.